welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Matt Rule. He's the CEO and founder of no-code automation platform Toka.io. He is a chartered engineer and a technical innovator and has a passion for bringing simplicity to complicated technology landscapes. With the rate of digital transformation picking up pace, Toka.io is partnering with healthcare providers to automate admin-heavy repetitive processes, connect legacy systems, and improve patient data. That is no mean feat from my time as a junior doctor going through all of that stuff. So looking forward to getting into this with you, Matt. So welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Very good, thank you. Excellent. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Matt? Uh, so I've got out the house and I've come to a shared office space in the centre of Reading. Um, oh, we, that's too far away from me. I'm in Weybridge. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So we um, we have an office uh, booked now for the 6th of September. So we're all looking forward to getting back there. Oh, but, cool. Um, it's going to be unusual. So the last time we had an office, like a lot of people, I guess, was March 2020. And um, it was quite convenient for us. We just our contracts ended. We're obviously in shared working spaces, and um, we've all been nomads up until <laughs> uh, you know we're due to come back. So it's it's quite exciting. But yeah, now I've got out today, and it's um, yeah, it's nice to self. Excellent, nice peace and quiet. Lovely. So the way we start these podcasts, Matt, is we get you to tell your story, and by all means, tell the long version. So yeah, the no code game. How did you get into it? What did you start with? You started as an engineer, didn't you? So tell us all about that, how you got into it and yeah, all the way up to what you're doing now in healthcare. Um, I, you can edit this. So that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. it's, it's always a positive that we can do that. There's, but there's tell the us the long version. I, um, I, I, I've been, I guess I was born an engineer it, it, to some degree. I've, I just love building things and physical uh, software, everything, uh, you know, tinkering. Um, and um, I'm not entirely sure if I'm academic or not. Um, I've got to say either by through discipline or in, I, I don't know. I just wasn't very good at school. Um, I, I think on that path, um i've always then had to struggle to sort of play catch up you know kids if you're listening um do your exams and um follow like dr james not not (laughs) not like me right and um and i i failed loads of stuff uh like gcse's and and a levels i think it's pretty certain to say they were they're all failures um, I remember really learning maths when I was about 15, 16, which was a bit late just before uh, sort of my exams. But then I actually really loved it. Um, so then that started to give me a bit of an inkling, combining that with I was al- already programming. And I was already kind of, you know, building stuff. So uh, I was definitely one of those kids. Um, and then I think there was kind of an inkling to that I could do this. I could go probably to uni or um you know and start to kind of build an education and a reputation for myself um and somehow i managed to get into um a university it was bournemouth university great location oh, obviously nice. it's not uh for engineering it's not a russell group or uh, whatever whatever um, good uni though lots of fun um and actually the thing with engineering is engineering's engineering uh it's yeah. mostly maths um I'm, I'm sure 
you know, the, the only thing I guess is I've had to build upon the reputation as there are a distinct set of universities out there, not to do Bournemouth down at all, um, but there are distinct engineering universities, which I'm sure um, people would recognise. And there's a degree of kind of um, elitism, as you know, throughout the world, mm. right? So you, you're always then on the back foot. Um, I've luckily I, I do have a high degree of tenacity and I kept going so I managed to get through university nearly failed my first year realized you can't just play around you got, you got to do this it's always year one yeah I've yeah been, I've, I've, I've got a strong I've got a strong desire not to lose money as well and I could see that I was probably going to out <laughs> with no, no no grades and loads of debt so I thought I better come out with something but I genuinely really enjoyed it and then when I left uni um, I managed to get a job. It was a bit of a nightmare. It was 2004. And in 2001, 2002, there'd been a massive crash in the tech sector. Lots of people laid off. Um, I guess it was timed with, you know, the bust of the sort of the internet bubble and all of that. Um, so you were, com- it was incredibly competitive. And so I just had to be prepared to go anywhere and get a job somehow. Um, did that. The job I took wasn't hugely challenging at the time and I remember um you know the guys were saying look just type these numbers these these values into this telecom system and uh, there's some of the locations were quite glamorous you know like Cairo and, and Paris and places like that but the actual job was just type these numbers into that box can you stop thinking just do you know do this mm. job uh, and I was trying to build automation systems and I was trying to do like loads of other stuff and I think it was probably um, I was probably one of those people that you kind of wish would just just get on with the job and stop trying to overthink it. Um, but really, I when I was at uni and, and obviously since, I've kind of always been into automation. I love systems. I love architecture, systems architecture, I love design, I love plugging things together. I'm not very good at code. It's a bit too low down for me. Um, even though I started uh, in, in code probably eight or nine um, or like a lot of 80s kids um, and um, the I don't know there's something about automation that I just absolutely love I love robotics and physical robotics um, and I've kind of been building the same system for probably about 20, 22 years, there was a realization I had a few months ago that this is Groundhog Day. I'm constantly building exactly the same tech, doing the same things. The thing I like about, uh, so just, just back, you know, on my, that, that, that journey, I started in telecoms, the job wasn't that challenging. And I felt really like I wanted to do a lot, a lot more. I wanted to be challenged a lot more and I've really been every day every working day I've been just trying to get to that next level job where I feel challenged and um, uh, it was a good mix of creative and business and all of these types of things yeah Um, I ended up working as a management consultant for a couple of years um, so doing public sector and private sector sort of jobs Mm. and I was really well paid um, and I kind of I think I realized I, I wasn't that bothered about earning huge money. Um, not at the, um, not if I was having to work on projects that I just didn't properly believe in. 
Yeah. I would rather do something that I believed in and be comfortable than absolutely smash it out of the park and really big numbers. And, you know, I felt like I'd be selling my soul ultimately. So I wanted that creative and that technical challenge. And the only that I think I realized the only way I was going to do that was to sort of leave and set up on my own. Um, I kind of been thinking about setting up a company for probably 20 years. So I'm darting all over, but when I was 17, I built and sold PCs. It was 97, <laughs> 98. And nice. I wasn't, I wasn't very good at building a business around that. And I kind of always wanted to work for myself. Um, and I've been thinking about ideas for, for 20 odd years, thinking, how am I going to do this? And, you know, what would the idea be? And I'd started to kind of come to the terms that, you know, I wasn't really going to set up a business and I was just going to be an employee. And in 2015, May 2015, I'd, you know, just before that, I made the decision, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure I've got enough money that I'm going to make sure I've got a trade that if I have to fall back, much like yourself, James, if you yeah. had to go back to a job, you could yeah. find a job. You, yeah, I'm not saying you're not doing a job now, but, <laughs> you know, this, know you go back to, you know, regular. Yeah, you've got the safety net because of the qualifications you've, you've got that safety you. net. Yeah, exactly. So you've got that responsibility. And I, I got to that point and I, I made a, a decision that I'd spend six months working out um, what I wanted to work in. So um, whether that was going to be a pure health tech company, whether it was going to be something completely different, like physical robotics or whatever that was going to be, I'd just spend a bit of time um kind of decorporatizing if that could be a word um taking all of that uh, taking all of that corporate stuff that i've learned and and sort of putting it to the side it's unlearning it it. isn't it it's unlearning it but keeping it somewhere because a lot of it's quite useful um and then it's a funny one actually because just on that i think there's a similar process i think when i left the nhs i'd experienced it from a clinical perspective i'd experienced it from a managerial perspective and i think i'd never really had a job other than that at that point and you kind of think that that's how the world is and it's that's not a bad thing it just is a thing that what i'd only been experienced to that world and so the processes the ways decisions were made the way that people communicated to each other, I just thought that was the default for working life. And that, you know, if you came up with a new idea, the, the default answer was no, unless proven otherwise, whereas actually there's a complete other world in innovation and people that say yes, if, or yes, let's find a way. And there's this other way of actually thinking and describing. Now, both of those systems are set up completely differently for very good reason, because you can't just have cavalier people going and moving fast and breaking things in an industry where, People and you'll know this very well, I'm sure, from your yeah. no-code work in the NHS, right? You can't have that cavalier attitude and move fast and break things when it's patient-facing because things can go very, very wrong for individuals. So yeah. there's a reason that things are set up the way they are, and it's not a criticism. It's just that in order for a good idea to prove itself in an NHS environment, it has to be really good. And yeah. as I keep repeating, there is good reason behind that, and the best ideas will eventually go through and make a difference. It's just that a lot of good ideas will be sacrificed in in, in the process, but obviously there's this other world where people think differently and blah, blah, blah. And there's loads of different worlds. We think differently, but 
it's a good point. And I think that that unlearning, but retaining it to use later, I think is extremely important because then knowing how decisions are made, knowing how people think, knowing that system in greater detail and retaining that information for them when you want to go and sell to them, when you are going to go and give advice for other people to do so or interact with them or partner with them in some way, it obviously becomes extremely useful. Yeah, exactly. I think where I've got to now, and I'm not wise you know, and uh, sort of beyond, well, I'm not trying to claim I've achieved this level of wisdom, far from it, but what I think I now believe is imbalancing, uh, imbalances, uh, probably clearer. So yes, I'm working for a startup scale-up organisation, founded startup scale organisation in technology. And you could kind of go straight into your, you know, straight up your own backside basically and start getting <laughs> uh and and and, uh, and feel really pleased with yourself and that's not going to help anyone that's kind of a self-centered view and actually what you're doing is you're setting up a company to provide a service to organizations yeah and you're if we're in health tech it's about patient outcomes or it's about you know improving the way that clinicians can you know perform their job or even if we're very much focused on the nhs it's very much focused on how can we um, solve um, the, the vast amount of, I guess, technology issues and operational inefficiencies in the NHS whilst the NHS continues to do what it does best? Um, and so we, we constantly need to kind of keep that balance. Um, I talk a bit about, like, I read this somewhere, which was the arrogance humility cycle. And I think arrogance is, is a really, uh, and what it, so I'll, I'll talk about what that is. And, Arrogance and humility is you've got to be arrogant enough to know that you're doing the right thing, but you've got mm. to be, you know, um, you've got to be able to listen. And you've got to be able to uh, learn. and You can't just be closed off and think you're right. Um, I think arrogance is a bit strong and it's more about conviction and resilience yeah. and tenacity ultimately. Um, but you've got to constantly be able to switch between those two things. And I think if you're working in balances across everything and trying to keep yourself balanced, keep yourself yes you've got to you've got to be innovative you've got to push and you've got to do something new in the market but yes you do need to think about well what's the quality of our product and you know yeah uh, what's the market going to take um yeah uh, you can't i've heard that to... in, in other terms of uh order and chaos and you have mm. these times where everything's very ordered and your you know cricket analogy your bowling line and length and you're just doing everything and that's it. You're just going through the motions, but everything's very ordered and everything's in the right way. But then there's the, and you can talk about this in life or business, actually. And in business terms, that might just be your entering business as usual. The clients are all the same, but then you might enter a period of absolute chaos where there's loads of new ideas and you're not spending your time wisely. You actually spend it on the bit that isn't scalable, but you do that enough to then realize that something clicks. And then when you return to order, yeah. The order's on a slightly steeper straight line and actually you're you're ordered in a slightly different way to going somewhere slightly different, perhaps better, perhaps worse, but you're ordered for a while until the next bit of chaos and you can apply that to life, obviously. But yeah, it's, in, it's interesting, that kind of think, duplicity I, in holding the two. I think, yeah, the duplicity, I think that puts it, it, yeah, puts it in a much better way than I, I think I was putting it, but that that's kind of how... I guess we're pushing forward as an organization. I mean, in terms of how our products developed and, and how we've, we've built it ultimately, like, you know, going back to these balances and how we, we push forward and going between the order and chaos, as you put it, is 
we do have a very innovative product. We are just pushing boundaries, but we've got a vision uh, throughout the company of what's right and what should be possible. And, yeah. um, and it's that that we, we kind of fall back to. So we, uh, we do have that conviction um, and we push forward with that common theme. And really what we're doing is as we're talking then with our customers and we're talking with prospects and we're, we're out there in the market is just listening to see what's going to fix somebody's problem better, what's going to make their life a lot easier. Um, what we've built as a company and a product, um, this is my first proper software product startup. Yeah. And uh, if I go back to myself six years ago, I'd just say, well, you know, shake myself. What are you doing, Matt? No, <laughs> stop. This is madness. Build something simple. Get it going first. And <laughs> we built a huge, a huge platform. Um, and our first customers uh, who weren't in healthcare um, surprised us really that they, they relied so much on our product and that our product had to run whatever it was, 20 hours of automation every night and it had to run on time and it had to work and it couldn't fail. And so what we've done is we built, or what we did, horrific grammar, and <laughs> this goes back to my upbringing, what we, <laughs> um, what we did is we, we had to build a system that was reliable but would allow our customers to, to be able to build their automation or build their system on top, which is kind of like, I don't know if I can explain this very well, but in my head, it's kind of like a second order of complexity. So you've got to be able to build a system that's reliable. But actually, what you're going to do is build a system that's reliable that allows you to build a system, a that's, system reliable. that's reliable. Yeah. And so that was a shock for us at the beginning. And we really had to kind of pull our socks up. Um, we had to focus heavily on customer service and, you know, listening to the customer and fixing problems because, yeah, we had them. Um, that's really interesting I've never, I've never yeah. heard of it in that way because but you're right because there's it's almost like an building a no-code solution if you if you're the one building a no-code solution you expect it to just work and, and therefore you expect it to be robust but obviously there has to be robustness in the system that allows you to design a no-code system that is robust so as you say it's an it's an order of magnitude more of robustness yeah. and resilience in a platform that's actually necessary because if one bit goes down it takes the whole load with it right like that's yeah uh, absolutely a difficult one to negotiate and one thing i've i guess i've learned um is building a company is hard right get selling something yeah professional services or even yourself think about if, if people think about when they go for an interview you you know you're selling that product which is you your cv you know your experience and it's tough you know, yeah for most people and then when you build a professional services firm where you've got other people you're selling then a service or you're selling um other people effectively that capability yeah when you then go to build um uh, and so companies are hard companies are hard to get off the ground and, and statistically that's that's evident um then pair that up with it projects well we all know all these it projects that fail vast majority fail or overrun and the madness, if you look at a lot of tech companies, and, and by the way, this isn't to kind of go, well, look how good we are, right? Um, we're still in the story. We're still turning the pages. But is to build a tech product at the same time as building a company. Um, it's the toughest thing I've ever done. Um, it's, but it's one step in, without going all cheesy and cliche. It is one step in front of the other to kind of, you know, listen, build and adapt and 
it's not a one man job or a one person job. It's mm. a team that, you know, we've had to sort of hone and craft um, to be able to uh, deliver this product and company. Um, so it's just, it's a lot of it is just time honored. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've gone off subject or off track there, James. Not at all, man. So no. as, as it relates to healthcare, so how do you describe what you do? Well, in fact, let's start with this, right? You're in, yeah, you're a no-code platform. So who are your customers in healthcare and how do you explain what you do and your value to them? Um, I'll answer it with just a small kind of caveat at the beginning. When we were at the beginning of Toka, uh, we, we took a significant amount of investment at the beginning and, um, uh, and we kind of got going and, and I said, we're not selling to the NHS. Uh, <laughs> we just, it'd be a nightmare. 240 trusts, or whatever yep. organizations, forget it. Um, we could see the, the, the need, but it politically or, you know, going through all the procurement channels, it'd just be a nightmare. We say a lot on here, really for the NHS, you, you should really be proving value somewhere else, make a few mistakes, build it even more robust and let them come to you quite often or indeed go to them with a real proposition that look how many places this is working. It's not going to that, fall that, over for your patients. Exactly. That, that would have been the plan if I'd gone back to my what I was <laughs> thinking at the beginning. We put this card cardboard robot that my nephew built. I think I paid him. I asked him how much he wanted for it, and I'm sure he said 40 quid, and he was only four or five years old. I thought, blimey, this is um, he's, he's going to be a good business. He's going for the anchoring effect there, just like yeah. throwing it up really not, high. <laughs> I don't know if I paid him 40. I hope I did. It's not. I don't know where I'm going with this. And we put this cardboard robot in the window of our office, and our office was on the pavement going up to, which the associate IT director of our local hospital walked past every day. Yeah. And we put one of these cheesy hipster signs that said, visit tokabot.io, which was our domain name at the Amazing. time. And um, yeah, he got in touch. And luckily, uh, his email didn't go into spam, as <laughs> it, I'm sure it nearly did. And we got back to, we got back to him. And uh, our local trust, um, are, there's a small team there that are really innovative. And they pull different technology in from different areas, like in a synesthetic yep. sort of way and combine new ideas. I think I heard that they were looking at the Thought Park uh, queuing for a roller coaster technology, you know, interesting fast track yep. or going for your bloods. Um, which interesting. Was, uh, the, I'm a bit squeamish, so it'd be the worst ride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's not much reward at the end of that queue. Um, <laughs> not that, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite over that just yet. Um, but so they, they, they got us in. We explained what our technology did and we just showed it. Um, pulling data from a, a system we didn't own effectively, you know, from a mm. what might be a legacy system or a system we don't have deep control of. And we showed them how our technology could pull data and it could write data to platforms that uh, of any kind. And I think it was that um, that got them thinking how they could use our tech. So they had they had three challenges for us. They had a really old endoscopy, sigmoidoscopy, and some other oscopy mm-hmm. uh, platform that had a couple of million records on it um, and images and, and various things. The tech was 20 years old, maybe, um, at least, and uh, was incredibly flaky. Uh, and all the data was kind of siloed within the system. So they wanted uh, to get it all off and then get it into some newer tech, newer platforms that they're bringing into their trust. Um, 
the if they'd done it manually, it was going to take them a couple of people for say two, three years or whatever to get all these records out. Mm. And there was no other way of getting the records out of this platform. Uh, it was well out of support. Uh, we automated that within a couple of days and wow. our platform just ran nonstop for, I think it was three months and pulled all the records out. And uh, I, I, I think I've got all my numbers right there, but the, the crux of it was, um, you know, this is a no brainer, like automation, in the right area is mind-blowing and it's yes it, it can just deliver such huge savings they tried us out in a couple of different areas like building gp practices and um and doing e-referrals yeah and that was it we were off we got we got ccio sponsorship there as well so Crucial. um uh, and and their ccio i think he's a cardiologist but um you know he's he's completely he's formidable as anything in technology yeah they are, often are cardiologists not oh, to it's, generalize it's, but they use a lot of tech and I, I i feel intimidated i mean this guy can open, <laughs> open up and do like human plumbing and then he can also just come straight into my world and do tech it's like you know um so uh yeah we've got an impressive bunch in our first trust that kind of proved where is that what is that trust if you can say so it's the royal berkshire hospital okay um uh, they've got a fantastic team um now what we did then is we realized that this is this is kind of a huge area so i'd said no nhs (laughs) we ended up um (laughs) changing our strategy we ended up changing our strategy so much that pre-pandemic we said look, let's focus 70, 80% of our effort on the NHS because we can really offer a hell of a lot of value. And the literature when you're building a tech company says find a vertical and focus on it or find yep. you know that area and focus on it. And the NHS is huge. The good thing with the NHS is, I mean, the return on investment values are anything from sort of 10 times, yeah. in some areas, 15 to 20 times. Yeah. So we can make money and we can build a sustainable business, but we can deliver a hell of a lot of value back to the NHS. And also, you know, I'm a taxpayer in the UK. Exactly. So we, can, we can sleep at night. And it's rewarding. Right thing. Yeah, absolutely. So we thought that'd be a great area and we would probably have a secondary vertical outside of the NHS, outside of public. Mm. Um, the pandemic then hit and we were in, I think we were in with the Royal Barks only. We might have been in a couple of trusts at that point. The trust we were with started using the system, um, you know, heavily for COVID-related um, sort of automation and dealing with, you know, the, the new added workload. Um, but it was almost then impossible to talk with any other trust because automation actually is not priority zero for people. If you've got a burning building or whatever, the first thing to do is get water on it. No one turning up selling you this super duper fire engine that's fully loaded with water. You're not interested in that just now. You know, you need to deal with the good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Automation. So much of the NHS is on fire in that analogy as well. Oh, well, it it was at the time. I mean, it Mm. was obviously, um, you know, it was desperate. um, And, you know, automation wasn't priority, priority zero, unless you already had the platform in and it was there in your hand and you could use it. And I think that's, that causes a few problems. So, but we kept, we kept focus on the NHS and we said, what we'll do is we can see the amount of value that we can add. And um, the pandemic is a, is a blip effectively. And we will use this time to sort of focus and ensure we're offering value. And um, 
and that's what we've done. And the company started to grow again um, uh, within other trusts, but also, you know, across other sectors as well. So we're about 50% focused on the NHS specifically. We're mostly focused in the UK as a company. Um, and obviously our future vision is to kind of take it global because the, the problems we solve are, you, you know, whether it's a hospital in America yep. or UK, yep. the types of things we're dealing with are similar. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I think another word that you haven't mentioned, but you definitely solve this problem as well, is the interoperability issue, which can be that's it. extremely boring to talk about. However, yeah. the value of solving that problem is enormous. So when you talk about pulling data from one system and being able to write it into another Goodness. I mean, the amount of conversations that I have had for the last eight years on who's going to solve the interoperability issue and you see all these different fire standards, you know, or HIP, like yeah. you see all of this stuff, right, that's intended to try and solve this issue. But clearly you found an organization that trusted you enough to give that a go and actually you've you've ended up with the results. And I think... That's another thing here that I often talk about when, when, when we mention NHS sales and we mention how to actually go about getting a pilot and a paid pilot and converting that into a contract. So much of it is about people and about trust. And I think it sounds like that's something that you did very well. You're clearly somebody who communicates extremely authentically. So I can imagine you're not someone who comes across as like a slimy salesperson that's just looking to, you know, windle them out of cash. You're going to be honest about your capability. And I think... That's another thing as well. You know, clearly there was that locality element as well that someone that's passing your office every day and sees you as a human being. I think that helps as an initial icebreaker. But then to build that relationship, gain the trust of those people enough to trust you and then to trust your technology, I think that's a really, a really nice kind of vanguard story of how to how to yeah. do it. Because I, I think quite often I end up saying to people that look the best products already exist. They are already out there. There is nothing to say that building the best product means that it gets bought. Yeah, That's in part a marketing issue, or you could call it in its entirety a marketing issue, but you'd have to define the marketing issue as how are you communicating about this, even as a human being to another human being and building that yeah. trust. Yeah. Because really that's where the deal is done. And then once you're in the NHS sell to each other, they'll tell the person down the road, this thing's amazing. They'll want to beat the other hospital down the road. Who's got better numbers than them. And th th there's loads yeah. of ways that those people will be credible to each other when they talk about it and all that type of thing, which means that scale, if you're solving a problem is actually, or can be slightly more straightforward than getting your first contract and pilot. Although there are people that would argue you've got to do this all the same work again. Yeah. Um, and you might have experienced both of those or none of those, but yeah, it's, it's an, it's an interesting and a nice the, story. I think the, the interoperability thing is, is it. Um, and we, we picked up on that, um, you know, early on that that's the big problem that we solve. The, the, there is a, an industry that we half sit in, which is called robotic process automation. Yeah. Which I, I think has become, um, probably slightly overused in terms of being used for everything and uh, being used for more stuff than actually what it's, it's good for ultimately. It's fantastic capability and our tool contains RPA technology, but an RPA does solve interoperability ultimately, but you talk about fire standards, 
and where APIs exist and where you've got things like Fire API and deeper uh, deeper integrations, they should be used mm. instead of using an RPA type approach. Mm. But then if you're dealing with a legacy system, of course, you know, use RPA. And is it going to be reliable enough? We've spoken to some trusts who've gone a bit RPA mad. I think Elon Musk, <laughs> talked, Elon Musk talked about over-automating, right? And he said, I've... I've, I've I, and, and they've they they've they've talked to us about dialing it back slightly and being able to get that mix and get that balance right because it's about engineering. It's about how are we going to solve this problem with the right tools, not with a fad or not with us yes. this new thing that I've heard about. Um, so we mix we mix all of that up. But the final thing that we do is we don't just look at automation. What we look at is definitely interoperability, ultimately, and that includes people. So the one thing everyone forgets is Interesting. they think automation and these systems, um, they kind of data flows between them without any human input. Yeah. Like we've just got this like cloud of systems that just intelligently talk with each other. No, they don't. The only reason that data flows between systems is caused by a person. It's caused because somebody went to the GP and they've got a referral. Yes. Or it's caused because this appointment's going to happen. So, since you start to think about people, then you come into no code apps. And that's then where you start to build apps and interfaces. And that, you know, or whether it's surfacing data, um, and I could touch on that in a sec, but being able to build apps so that people can quite quickly interface into these flows yeah. um, is really important. Um, so people aren't filling out Excel spreadsheets, which are kind of a nightmare for, for scaling a, 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 an admin team or an organization. But you can then have an app that you can start to manage different patients and, you know, and all of that stuff. But just just finally, we then we built we combined automation with these apps so that. For instance, in terms of surfacing data, we we're working with a trust who. Um, asked us if we could help in cancer pathways, as they called it, multidisciplinary team. Um, I'm not an expert on this, but the challenge that I understood was one of their problems was being able to get visibility on where patients are within their life cycle of going through the different departments where they are in terms of radiology scans and things like that. So just simply being able to go into five different platforms and pull out a single view of that patient and be able to sort of manage um, uh, which would help them manage uh, a lot more effectively. So that's less about automation. That there is automation in pulling that data, but it's more about um, it's it's more about aiding the clinicians to be able to make decisions um, a lot more simply. And so we kind of start to turn this concept on its head. And that's mm. where things move away from just purely robotic process automation. It's, there, there's a bigger there's a bigger um you need bigger tools ultimately you need a you need bigger capability to solve the interoperability problem properly um yeah i think the interesting, interesting thing for me is is obviously talk about one technology and and no code and automation and the amount of problems it can end up solving i think that's really interesting for yeah for solving that interoperability problem, I mean, that that obviously just touches literally everything, but even the specific examples that you start mentioning there about clinical decision-making and this person taking too long to do this thing. And it's, it's sort of like a, it's not a, it's not a super specific digital therapeutic that's meant to strengthen this one relationship between a clinician and a patient. It's more of a, 
it's more, I don't know what the right word is, but it, it's more of a, a philosophy, an ethos, a, a something that a trust might commit to in terms of we, this is the way we do our systems. And this is the way we think about building a new unit. It's going to include this. And it seems that for people listening that might be in NHS management or working in trust or, or having that level of influence, it sounds like the best time to engage you is as close to the beginning as possible. Would I be correct in assuming that? Um, I, I, I think I would say yes. Um, and I think it's good to hear it back, actually, in terms of the ethos. Um, that starts to make sense with one of the, our newer customers over in the east of England, um, an organization, East Suffolk North Essex Foundation Trust, who um, we've just deployed a LAMP, uh, and I don't know the acronym, I'm going to look at you, you've got doctor, and but it's the spitting in a tube and clinicians submitting their tests once a week, so it's constant testing okay, effectively. Yeah. So we've built a front-end clinician portal so that they can uh, log when they're sending in one of their samples and then put that in the post. And then that goes to the, this new pathology lab that they've built. But inside the pathology lab, they've then used Toka to build a no-code laboratory system then to be able to process um, uh, and, and to uh, log the results ultimately of, of these tests. So they built two platforms. They built a platform that's actually public it's running in Azure and focuses out to all the, the clinicians and the sort of the wider, um, the, the wider staff of, of that trust. And then they've also built the laboratory platform as well. And so they've built that all on Toka. So you've kind of got a single layer throughout the wow. trust where they can then start to build these, um, these platforms. So it's not just about automation. It's completely about the whole business process yeah. and connecting that. So you're absolutely right. If you can get that and start thinking about that early, you can get the best. Well, it's not bang for buck, is it? It's, um, I don't know what, ping for pound. I don't know what you call it in the <laughs> UK, right? But you can get the best return ultimately. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think so many of those purchasing decisions will be around health economics as well and the economics around the savings and, and, things like that in, in the NHS market, it's always about savings rather than profit. And I think that's where this as a philosophy really comes into its own because I imagine when you start to stack these solutions on each other and in and around each other, you get some sort of compound effect of some automated systems then being able to just talk to some other automated systems. I kind of think of it as like electric cars on the road now are having to look out for and, and, and look at analog cars, petrol cars with one mechanism. But when every car is electric on the road, the whole thing acts as one. The whole thing yeah. is just one moving system of electric cars that are never going to crash into each other unless yeah. something extremely bizarre happens. So yeah, that that if you are you are you seeing this in healthcare yet where you're starting to see compound if all these your customers might be starting to see these compound effects which for the health economic point of view that must really start to show returns we i say yes we are and the the thing is is when these things happen they're not that eventful it yeah well time. by definition they're not right? it, it <laughs> takes time to stand back and go holy crap, you know, they've 
So our first COVID-19 portal was built in an afternoon and went and was ready to go live to 6,000 staff the day after. And it's because mm. it's just drag and drop and that integrated yeah. into the internal systems within the trust. But it's very uneventful. Um, it's, it's, so, it's so funny. I don't know if you've ever watched yeah. The Thick of It, which is like the political comedy that was on the BBC a while ago, but there's a bit in there where they call a press conference and they're like, can we just talk about the fact we've just been a really good department and we've just done really good business as usual stuff and like everyone should be thanking us for just being a really good department? Like, yeah. like no, that's not news. It's like, yeah. but it's like, that's the point, right? Like, yeah. It's, if it's uh, doing uh, its job, there'll be no news. <laughs> exactly. And then that kind of makes it hard to market, I guess, in some sense. But the, the, there is, I mean, for me, it is just one step in front of the other. And yeah, we're building the trust and um, within the NHS. And we do that by, we lead, um, we put our money where our mouth is ultimately. Um, and, uh, and also just to note, I've worked in private, I've worked in public, we've got prospects across private and public and charities. And when the NHS is innovative, it's not all trust, by the way, um, but the ones that are innovative, they're the most exciting to work with out yeah. of anywhere. And I'm talking acute, general, but they've got such high throughput. Um, mm. They've got a legacy landscape. They've got quite complex processes. They really are mission critical as well. And it's the best place to be as a technologist, um, especially when you can affect really, you know, a positive outcome. You're not just there messing, messing around with stuff. It's genuinely got purpose. I think it's that that it does make it the most exciting area. I don't know if the NHS believes this. When I talk with prospects and we we say this, and maybe they think we're blowing smoke up the backside, but I I I think you understand it. it you know what you've said back to me, and genuinely what we see, it is exciting. Um, and well, it's hard for the, you to yeah. it's hard for you to contain your because you, you, you're a genuine communicator and you see it in your face when you start saying that stuff. It's very it comes across very genuine. It's very clear that you're not blowing smoke anywhere, you know, because yeah. you start smiling and you start getting more animated. And it's true. Like it, it, clearly it is exciting because on on that level of we have a national health service that provides free at the point of care service to you know everybody in the country and it needs to be protected because it's going to lose if we keep going the way we are anything that we can do to support that is extremely rewarding if you're a sane human being that wants to make a difference and help right like that's yeah it, it's nice it, it is nice and it is a it is a really nice space to play in it does just strike me though that i think what you're doing has it's different to a lot of the, the people that come on here because I think while we talk a lot about tech solutions, we talk about a thing, a thing that you can hold, a thing that you can see, a platform you can go on, a, a thing that does one thing to strengthen something in the system. This is more of an infrastructure play. And because it's an infrastructure play and because it's interoperability, it's hard to grab headlines with it. It's hard to yeah. just say, well, the business as usual is 1% better, but over time that compounds to a thousand percent when you start layering that, you know, it's, it's difficult to say that to, to give that message, but clearly yeah. this stuff to me is more exciting. I'm someone who's really operational in my business and I like just thinking deeply about how to make something slightly more productive yeah. executing it and then seeing that everything is much smoother just from this yeah. one thing that you've changed. I love seeing that. Yeah. I think when you, when you think then about the, the, the processes that go on in an NHS trust and just 
the plethora of things to pick from problems to pick from for you guys to solve there's so many and there's so many there's so much ground we can make up here without saying words like machine learning and ai which you've not mentioned here which is really nice you've mentioned rpa and and automation and i think that's it it's it's like it's thinking simply but with a very technologically advanced solution that you have in order for the people who actually experience these problems to then actually go and build their own clinical pathway to get these problems solved. I think when you think about the compound effect that will have over time for these innovative trusts that are doing it now, I think there's, there's just there's so much advantage to be made in health economic terms that I think, honestly, I think it's silly the amount of money that can be saved by by adopting these processes in terms of the people that listen to this podcast, and there'll be lots of them in healthcare and technology and all yeah. sorts. Who is it that you're wanting to speak to at the moment? Um, if you were to do a shout out for people to get in touch with you. Um, <clears throat> so there's a few different names, ultimately uh, CCIOs and uh, some trusts have CDIOs um, or C- CIO and CTO uh, IT director roles. Um it seems to vary amongst trust, but ultimately it's the people that are there driving that transformation and they are looking to, you know, get those savings and make those operational improvements within their trust. A lot of the trusts have got this as part of their digital, um, as part of their digital strategy and are probably wondering how to go about it. There are a couple of RPA solutions to look at, but like I say, where they're good, they're not that um they're not that solution that's going to fix the whole problem. They're probably going to patch over the issue. And so, like you say, that's that ethos and starting to knit something through the organization, which can solve the problem right at the core uh, and to be able to do it um, pain-free, right? Um, yeah. And to do it quite simply, it's whoever's leading those initiatives. So I do think it starts top down. The trust have to have this built right in at the top. Um, and they need to flow that down. So um, ho- hopefully that answers that. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, that absolutely, yeah. Question. So it's the, yeah. it's the people in it's the people in trusts that want to make a change. And I think actually that can go right up to CIO, CCIO, CTO, CEO, even. But I think that can go down to the people even in these clinical pathways that think that something could be done differently. And I think they, I'm sure they will find value in at least looking at what you guys do and creating some demand bottom up as well, because it's the the ground floor clinicians quite often that end up feeling the pain of all this um, and yeah. feeling frustrated and wanting to make things uh, more efficient and, and better for their patients who they are putting a handle and speaking to directly for that human input. So um I'd encourage everybody to have a look at this, to be perfectly honest, if you work in the NHS um, and to get in touch with Matt, if uh, you want to learn more. So Matt, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure Um, for people that do want to get in touch with you or learn more about Toka. How do they go about that? What's the best place for them to find info? Um, So if you go to Toka, T-O-C-A dot I-O on on the internet, on your web, uh, you will actually be using Toka when you do that because that's the Toka app of course um so go visit that web page or um you can email info at toka.io as well awesome matt thank you so much thank you for having me hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content